Hello, and welcome to episode 222 of AvTalk. I am Ian Pechnik here, as always, with... Jason Urbanowitz. How are you, Ian? I'm well, Jason. It's episode 222, and that, of course, brings to mind the famous Lufthansa flight 2222 to Toulouse. Ah, we'll talk about Toulouse in a little bit. We will. We're not quite there yet, but that's the first thing that popped into my head as I led off the show. How are you, sir? I'm good. I'm good. I'm happy. I'm home. I'm not flying. I'm not trying to fly anywhere. We'll get to that in a little bit, but I'm very happy to be home. (laughs) I wouldn't mind being somewhere else at the moment, but I'm glad I'm not flying to get there. We've got the Canadian wildfire smoke this week in Chicago, so we we had the dubious distinction. Oh, yeah. That's coming our way, too. Yes. Yeah, we're sending it your way. But we had the very dubious distinction this week of having the worst air quality in the world. So we're number one. Yay. That's great. I feel like we had that distinction just a couple weeks ago. And then here we go again. So thanks, Canada. Your air quality disaster at least looked pretty. It did. I'm somewhat disappointed I wasn't here to see the sky turn a frightening shade of orange and I was happily in Germany or whatever, but I kind of did want to see it, though I hope I never get the opportunity to see that. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, thankfully, it's supposed to go away this evening. It's Wednesday, June 28th, and we've got some good stuff on tap in the show this week. Later in the show, we chat with Zach Brown, who's the founder of the European Pride and Aviation Network. He's a pilot for a European package express carrier. We'll let uh, minds wander on onto what airline that might be. But we talk Ooh. about broadening who is involved in aviation and making sure that aviation is a place where everyone can see themselves. So an important discussion and one I look forward to later in the show. But we begin the show with talking about Flight Radar 24, actually, because we often get comments from people that say, well, you never talk about Flight Radar 24 on the Flight Radar 24 podcast. And never heard of it. Yeah, exactly. And so I thought it would be a good day to do that. So this week, a few months ago, we talked about the new Flight Radar 24 website and, and releasing the beta availability if people wanted to check that out. And thankfully, a lot of people did because we got some amazingly helpful feedback. And after all of that feedback and work from everyone who had a hand in it, it is now no longer Flight Radar 24 beta. It is just FlightRadar24.com. Hooray! I still have to check it out one of these days. Turns out I use the site very infrequently on desktop, maybe because a lot of those features are missing. So I'm excited to finally sink my teeth into it. Yeah, so the visible changes are there's the site has been redesigned, cleaned up, and some things have moved around. We've got everything in a hamburger menu now to kind of clean up the top navigation and, and leave more space for the actual aircraft on the map. But the biggest functional changes are the new filters. And the biggest change is obviously the category filters because they got their own panel. So remember now you were able to filter by categories of aircraft. So think passenger or cargo or military and government or business jet. And that's all one-click filtering. And there's also a variety of additional filters that you can play with now. So we'll put a link in the show notes to the, the, the blog post we've got on filters in the new page. And then we will 
say enjoy and keep giving us feedback, please. Lots of changes to the site happened because users used the site and said, hey, what about this? And, and so we've been able to include a lot of that stuff. And, and I'm really excited that all of the hard work that the teams have been working on is, is finally visible to, to everyone. Fantastic. And don't worry, Jason, as I know an avid app user rather than than a desktop user, all of the additional features that were added to the website first will come to the apps in upcoming releases. So so don't worry, everything is coming to the apps. And, And some of the things that are already there. Well, I've been using the new Flight Radar 24 website a lot this week, especially with the weather layers activated, because the United States of America's skies have been very active, both with aircraft and with thunderstorms, and it has not been fun. Yeah, I've specifically been using some of those filters to filter aircraft only on the ground, because it turns out most aircraft, at least in the Northeast, have spent far more time on the ground than in the air, which is not great. Never a great thing when you have to double check what day the departure was supposed to be. Man, that's true. Is this aircraft delayed or is we'll, it? We'll talk about machine? cancellation rates in a little bit, but that is an interesting point that sometimes airlines don't actually cancel the fight, they just operate it. 12 hours late for various reasons. There are legitimate reasons why you delay an 8 p.m. flight on Tuesday to 11 a.m. on Wednesday. There, there are reasons why you do that, but yeah, then they don't end up reflected in the, the cancellation sets, even though effectively to the passenger, that really is a canceled flight. Yeah, you, you didn't get there on the day that you wanted to get there. That's happened a lot this week. What happened? Where do we even begin? Where do we even begin? So This is one of those cases where things went downhill and went downhill fast. And it affected because major US carriers and one major US carrier in particular has hubs in certain places and there was very bad weather in those places. In the regions, not even at the airport. Right. We'll talk about that. We'll talk about that in a minute. The weather never even hit New York City proper or even Newark. It barely rained here at all over the last few days. But the impact to United has been dramatic. Looking at cancellations, just cancellations, not even not even delays, looking at just cancellations because the delays have – it's almost meaningless at this point because so many flights have been delayed to say, you know, looking at a percentage of delayed flights, it's just the system is delayed at this point. But going back to last week, so today's the 28th, looking at the 21st, 87 flights canceled. Okay. That's a bad day, but not terrible. Bad day, but not terrible. The 22nd, 235 flights were canceled. Uh Then the 23rd, that dropped back down to 94. Oh, okay. Then the 24th, 147 flights. Still, I mean, we're talking out of 4,400 flights a day. This is normal summer stuff. Decent, yeah. This is, thunderstorms pop up, flights get canceled. And, and again, a lot of these flights that we're talking about so far are not necessarily mainline flights. You know, looking at these flight numbers, I'm seeing a lot of 5,000, 6,000. Picking all the little numbers. guys. Yeah. So, as we've talked about in, in the past, but might be worth repeating, there's often the case where airlines, because you're dealing with weather and you can only operate so many flights. You're going to try and operate as many passengers as you can to make sure as many itineraries are completed as possible. And I would love to 
you know, go under the hood, either United, American, I don't pick an airline. I don't care. I would love to go under the hood and learn a lot more about how that system works, how those things are prioritized and what the real criteria are for, for ensuring that, you know, these flights are going to go, but maybe not these flights. So, so far, most of these flights have been non-mainline flights, so so regional flights operated by regional carriers on behalf of United Airlines. Then we get to the 25th, 472 flights. Ew. Yeah. 26th, 705. Whoa, that's a lot higher. 27th, 929 flights. And this is just United and this United This is just Express. United and United Accessories. Yes. And then today, let's see, we're up to 600 and right before we recorded, it was 625. So still quite high. Still quite high. Let's unravel what we think happened. As most important and notable things, it happened here in New York, I would say, starting at least. <laughs> Jason doesn't have an inflated value no, as, no, no. as all, a sense all, of place. All important things start here and then of they course, ripple out elsewhere. But uh-huh. we're also the last city to get all the good things that the rest of the world enjoys. But let's break it down what happened. Basically, our weather turned into Florida's weather for like four days. And it did that thing where there are thunderstorms that just keep coming. And it wasn't your typical Northeast summer thunderstorm front where you'll see a storm front, it will push through, flights work their way around it, and then it it leaves until the next wave. This was just off to the west of Newark, never actually over Newark for the most part, but to the west of Newark, to the north, to the south, just this line of constantly forming thunderstorms all day from the early morning to late at night. And it just kept happening for days and days and days. And then it was also compounded on Sunday by, I think, an electrical issue or, or some sort of communication electrical issue at the FAA's TRACON facility down in, what was it, Alexandria in Virginia? Did I get that right? I can't remember exactly where the TRACON is, but it, it's it's called the Potomac TRACON. That's responsible for, for basically mid-Atlantic airspace. Yeah. Somewhere down there, they had an issue and that stopped all flights in and out of a few airports, notably DCA and Dulles, which is another United hub for a good while, which certainly didn't help that now United had two of its major hubs completely offline. But it's very unusual for these storms to just have been constantly being fueled and, and raging off to the west. And they didn't stop until today. But now United's system is so out of whack that it can't easily recover like they would have in the past. And this isn't exactly like a a Southwest airline style meltdown that we saw last December. The rest of its national system is still, they're doing their best to keep things moving. But when you have so many crews stuck and not able to get in or out of one of your hub or aircraft that diverted all over the place, it it takes days to reset. And thankfully, the, the whole thing didn't collapse and they didn't have to pause for a day and hit the reset button like Southwest, but it sure seems like they came close. The the thing that you mentioned, I think, is important because it opens up a bigger conversation about delays and cancellations. And you mentioned that the weather never really actually impacted New York City, like people in New York City. No, it, it sprinkled here a little bit, but that that was it. So last night was Tuesday night. Tuesday, we were just kind of looking at parking lots 
at various New York airports, especially LaGuardia, I think had a basically ran out of room on the ground for aircraft. Yeah, there, there was a ground stop issued because it was turning into gridlock. Even with the revamped Terminal B and the extra taxiway space and, and the pedestrian bridges over the taxiways, they, airplanes could not leave. So you can't take in any more flights. And they wanted to prevent, or at least try to prevent what happened to United and other international arrivals at Newark, where you were having flights land and then sit around waiting three and a half, four hours for a gate. One of those flights, unfortunately, was an Iceland Air flight, a 73 Max with a what must have been a busted APU, which meant no air conditioning while on the ground. And I think Oof. they had to bust out oxygen bottles and all sorts of stuff. Ooh, uh, ooh. Very unpleasant. So they wanted to prevent that from happening at LaGuardia as well. But I don't think that quite worked. But yeah, go on. Why did that happen? Yeah. So one of the things that we were talking about yesterday was that the weather, and we get this people right in, you know, on a semi-regular basis, I, I think, and, and say, well, hey, how come, do you know why my flight was delayed? I'm looking at the weather and it, it's fine. And the answer is usually that, you know, if the airline is saying weather, they're not lying to you, but it might not be the weather where you are. It's the weather where your plane is, the one that you're going to get on next. It's the weather where the crew who's supposed to fly the plane is. Or the weather between where you are and where you want to go, which right. was really the case here where this, there's just this massive line of storms that just would not go away west, north, and south of New York and for various reasons, there's lower capacity than there should be, but they just couldn't pump many or, or really at all any flights through the region. And, and I'll talk a little bit about why we knew this was going to happen, or at least why we knew the repercussions of this would be so great or seemingly exacerbated over years past, because we knew this was coming. And, and I'll transition into that in a minute. I think it's a perfect transition time now. I think we can certainly discuss, you know, why this is, it sucks. We were warned. We knew this was going to come. We knew this was going to happen. Uh, remember back in March, we discussed how the FAA said, well, crap, our New York Tracon facility is really, really severely short staffed down to like just barely over 50% of our staffing levels where the rest of the country is at or around near the staffing levels that we need. And, and, in response to that, the FAA lifted some slot requirements here in New York. So United, Delta, and American were able to shed some of the flights they normally would have been required to operate, which is really like, I don't know, that's only going to scratch the surface of what they would need to do. But and I quote here, the FAA said, the staffing shortfalls at N90, which is the New York Tracon facility, limit the FAA's ability to provide expeditious services to aircraft operators and their passengers that traverse the airspace. And then they go on specifically to say, absent increased flexibility, there exists a high probability congestion and delay at JFK, LGA, and EWR during significant national air system impact days, for example, holiday travel spike adverse weather could be exacerbated by N90 staffing shortfalls. They warned us this was going to happen. We all knew this was going to happen. The FAA knew, the airlines knew, they warned the public and they, they took some actions to try to lessen the impact. But when you combine leading up to a holiday weekend with these storms, it was just always going to be a disaster this year. And this is just the first time it's going to happen this summer. It will happen again. 
What really bothers me is you're not wrong. Well, oh, we're doing this again? What do you mean? That you don't like when I'm right. No, 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 no. It, it's not that you are right. Oh. This isn't a you thing. Oh, okay, okay. See, I'm trying to make it about me. No, no, no. I wasn't trying to do it. But like, it's one of those things just like, we all know what's coming. Here it comes. And it's going to happen again. Yes. And I get, you know, trying to fix these problems is systemic and it's not overnight and all of these things. But like, good on them for identifying the problem. But the Department of Transportation Office of Inspector General released a report last week basically saying that there are not enough people and that's really bad for a number of reasons. And the FAA needs to address this. And one of the charts in the report is really interesting to me because there are roughly 1,200 fewer certified controllers now than there were 10 years ago. And there are so many more flights. None of that makes any sense. To me, the idea that like, how do you not work as hard as you can to make sure that the increase in flights, and I get some of this is technology and staffing needs change and the types of staffing needs change. And I understand all that. But it just seems to me that like, this was not a surprise. We have more aircraft in the sky. We need more people to make sure that they're safely in the sky. Not a surprise to anyone. And it's not not a recent issue. This has been going on for decades. So you can't blame the Biden administration. You can't blame the Trump administration. You can't blame the Obama administration because this has been going on for years. You can blame all of them, actually, but you can't blame anyone in particular. This isn't a now issue. This is an ongoing issue that's been just Nobody wants to do anything about it. Thankfully, we have the DOT OIG saying, hey, you really got to do something about this because it's getting worse, a lot worse. And weekend, not even weekends anymore, just weeks like this reinforce that the FAA is not up to the task of the amount of flights in the schedule plus our seemingly ever worsening weather situation here in the US. It's not going to get any better. It's only going to get worse. So here we are. So here we are. Yeah. To kind of cap this off, the report urged the FAA to review the kind of staffing distribution and to increase the staffing levels where it's needed on an interim basis and do what they need to do to just put controllers where they need to be to make sure that a minimum level of safety is is achieved. FAA should also, and this is a big one to any controller that you'll talk to, and implement a new labor distribution system that includes features such as timekeeping, overtime, and controller in charge tracking, and real-time leave balances. So, I mean, controllers are overworked. I mean, they're looking at six-day work weeks. I mean, in a job that is incredibly stressful. No thank you, sir. For its part, the FAA says, yeah, we agree with all of that. So we're going to be done with implementation of all of those by the 30th of September. So says the FAA. Okay. Well, I hope they meet that goal. Yeah, that doesn't help us this summer. So if you are flying anywhere, especially in the Northeast this summer, have some backup plans. I know I do. I book some overlapping Amtrak trips over my flights just in case I need them. Well, all right then. If you can take advantage of that little tip, please do. But otherwise, yep, pack your patience. And it sounds like on the bright side, I will say on the bright side, on a normal day, if we have any, 
on a normal day, the system worldwide seems to be in much better shape this summer than it was last summer. Oh, yeah. I don't think anyone can dispute that. There have not been baggage meltdowns, security meltdowns, air traffic control meltdowns. This in the Northeast, this was isolated and predicted and expected and delivered as promised. So can't so, say we didn't see it coming. <laughs> yeah. So what we said was going to happen did happen and it sucked. This one I did not see coming and it happened before we recorded the podcast this week. How about All that? Right. And no one was hurt. So And oh, oh. no one was hurt. A Delta 717 flying from Atlanta to Charlotte this morning, this Wednesday morning, landed in Charlotte with its nose gear not extended. The aircraft landed safely. No one was injured. They are working to remove the aircraft. And by the time we are recording, I'm not following breaking news, but they may have gotten it off the runway by now. And surely by the time you listen to this podcast, the aircraft will no longer be on the runway. So fantastic job by the Delta pilots to get that aircraft down safely. And I mean, I saw a video from inside the cabin and Mm -hmm. unless you knew, which obviously all the passengers did, but say you didn't, or you had had your headphones in the whole time, you would be confused why you stopped on the runway because the landing looked that smooth. Yeah. You'd be concerned and questioning, why are we not taxiing to the gate? I'm going to miss my connecting flight because <laughs> it was a smooth landing. So hats off to the pilots and the cabin crew on that aircraft for doing something pretty great. That 717 sure looks sad. On the runway from the pictures I saw, it just looks like looks like a dog that knows it did something wrong and it's ashamed <laughs> of itself, and it, it wants to be better. But now it's just it's in the doghouse. Oh man! But the NTSB has said they will go investigate, investigate. And, and give it some treats, and Delta Tech Ops will go make it all better. They're already on their way. The registration November nine five five Alpha Tango. It is a Boeing seven one seven two hundred, originally delivered to Airtran in two thousand. Oh yeah, it's only a nearly twenty three year old aircraft. This thing's got another forty years flying at Delta, so they'll get it patched up. <laughs> they'll get it patched up, and it'll be right. By, it might even be in service by tomorrow. Maybe. No. Who knows. So we go from very old aircraft to very new aircraft, and Wizz Air took delivery of the first Chinese-assembled Airbus for a non-Chinese airline. It is an A321neo, and it is going to go into service with Wizz Air Malta. That's nice. Yeah. I think we talked about this in a we prior did. episode, but, they, they but have now it, it is done. It is real. It happened. That's nice. Not the first time, I think. Technically, U.S. aircraft has been manufactured outside of the U.S. I think McDonnell Douglas with MD-90 maybe had a – was there a Chinese production line for those aircraft? I think. Maybe. You know what, Jason? You have stumped me. Mm. I Podcast think that's, at you know, fr24.com. Yeah, yeah, you know, I don't know. Google search this no, right no, no, now. No, no, no. No, you can't. No, we will come back to this next episode. Okay. We, because we somebody, will, uh, somebody out there has the full story and I want, I want to find it. All right. So yeah, the emails, podcast at fr24.com and give us the scoop. But yeah, they took delivery via, let's see, uh, Tianjin to Amadi to Budapest and then onward from there. So congratulations, Wiz Air. Hmm. Oh, oh, 
I have more information oh. about that. It did happen. I didn't imagine it, but only I think two were ever built. <laughs> okay. Well, there you go. Mm-hmm. Enter Air entered Ukrainian airspace and caused a kerfuffle earlier in the week. There were storms over Eastern Europe in Eastern Poland, and Slovakia, and Eastern Hungary. And the Enter Air 737 flying from Poznan to Antalya was trying to work its way around them and flew into Ukrainian airspace. A big no-no. It flew into about as far Western Ukraine as you can get. So there wasn't necessarily a danger here. And it's not the passengers weren't in danger, the crew wasn't in danger or anything like that. But the flying into no civil aircraft in this airspace thing is kind of a big deal. And so every aviation authority in Poland, because Enter is a, a Polish airline, is currently investigating what happened, why, and to make sure it does not happen again. They were avoiding thunderstorms and flew too far east. And looking at the flight track, which we'll post in the show notes, that was quickly realized and they got out of Ukraine as fast as they possibly could. Yeah. I mean, I like the way you put it in the show notes where you just say, Enter Air enters Ukraine to not enter a thunderstorm. Yeah. Sometimes, I guess, flight safety Trump's geopolitics. I don't even know if on their flight display they even see the border of a country. They just see red on their radar showing a thunderstorm that they probably don't want to enter, deviated around it. So, whoops. But I'd rather them do that than enter a dangerous thunderstorm. So, sure. The question remains is why they deviated in that direction, how they got into the position in the first place, and they're investigating all of that good, fun stuff. So, I'm sure we'll hear something in a few months on that front. Good news, bad news, or bad news, good news, I guess. Spirit Aerosystems machinists have been on strike since the 22nd of June. And who are they? What do they do? Those are the folks that build all of the things that let other aircraft manufacturers build their planes. So Spirit uh-huh. Aerosystems builds what is, I guess, the most recognizable thing that Spirit Aerosystems builds are the 737 fuselages where you yes, see the they. trains of green wearing their, you know, the anti-corrosive coating, green 737 fuselages moving westward towards Seattle. Yes, definitely important to know who Spirit Aerosystems is and what they build to know why this is just so important for Boeing. Yes, not just Boeing, though I would say most important for Boeing, but they are a supplier to both Boeing and Airbus. This is one of those companies that is extremely important to the commercial aerospace manufacturing supply chain. And their machinists have been on strike since the 22nd of June. They have reached an agreement that there's going to be a rank and file vote that they are being encouraged to vote for. If ratified, they would be back on the job after the 4th of July holiday on the 5th of July. And that ratification vote will take place tomorrow, June 29th. So when you're listening to the podcast, you'll be able to go, oh, I wonder how they voted. And you can go check the news to see how they voted and whether or not they'll be back at work. But it sounds like from the description of the deal, it's a good deal for the machinists. And it sounds like they're going to vote for it and be back on the job sooner rather than later. Good for them. Yeah. Let's take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll be joined by Zach Brown, who's the founder of the European Pride in Aviation Network, and also a pilot for one of the very large and very colorful package express carriers in Europe. So stay with us. We'll be right back. (music) 
Welcome back. We are now joined by Zach Brown. As we close out Pride Month around the world, we thought it would be great to have a conversation with someone who is in the aviation community and very focused on making sure that there's a great space for folks who are from diverse backgrounds of all kinds, LGBTQIA+. And so we've asked him to come on and talk about how his organization, the European Pride in Aviation Network, is developing that community and creating a place where aviation can be a space for, for everyone. So Zach, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much to yourself. It's a pleasure to be here. So you are a pilot with, I'll say, a large European package express carrier. Think bright colors and easily identifiable aircraft, but we'll leave it at that and let our listeners figure that out. So I assume that's your full-time job. And then EPAN, because it's aviation, so we need a good acronym. You founded EPAN. Tell me more about what your goals are with your organization here. I'm happy you said that because, you know, it's true with in aviation. What is aviation without an acronym? So It, it is nothing, in fact. <laughs> but I, I do sincerely hope that our acronym is one that people can remember if you have to spell it out because a lot of these Airbus acronyms or whatever, you know, you actually two years after the typewriting, you have no idea what it stands for anymore. So. <laughs> So EPAN, European Pride and Aviation Network, actually has its roots in an American organization called the NGPA that's been around since 1990. We started off as an unofficial kind of international chapter of this American organization back in 2016 as a, more of a kind of like a social group and organizing events, trying to attract like-minded people throughout the aviation industry and provide them a space where they could basically be however they want to be, where it's not possible maybe at home or in the workplace. And and that picked up so much attention and attraction throughout the aviation industry in Europe that we decided together with the American organization to kind of create an individual organization that can focus itself, uh, that can focus its needs on the special needs that a European organization may need to attend to. And so thus we founded last year uh, the European Pride and Aviation Network as a partner the international partner organization of the NGPA. And our mission is simple. It's basically to build, support, and unite the entire LGBTQIA plus aviation community around the world or around Europe and beyond in our case, and together with the American organization basically covering the entire world. So at EPAN, we basically have two sides of the organization. The more frontal side of the organization is the community. So we basically, our members, it's a membership-based community organization. Our members basically come from the entire aviation industry around Europe and also neighboring countries. And basically anybody's able to join EPAN. We do have this focus on European events and this European kind of community and, and social aspect, as well as what we're doing with the European aviation industry. So on this community side, we offer our members various benefits, such as the safe space that I mentioned, a place where you could really just be who you want to be, not have to worry about being looked at funny if if you hold hands with somebody of the same sex or dress maybe a bit differently or or use pronouns that somebody might get confused by out there in, let's say, in, in air quotes, the normal world. And we provide our members this kind of support network if you have issues that you're facing, also aeromedical issues that that may be relevant um, in the LGBTQ world, such as transitioning at the workplace or how do I get a medical with uh, if I have HIV, etc., And we also organize social events for the community to come together. Those are happening all around Europe and basically to catch up with old friends and meet new friends and, and have this like-minded kind of 
space where where everybody i mean most of the people here listening to this podcast have something to do with aviation and people know very well in the aviation industry we like to talk about our work we like to talk about our passion for aviation and on the other side we work with the industry so we're connecting with airlines with flight schools with aviation companies other organizations and associations from all around Europe and coming into contact with them and shining light on the topic of diversity and inclusion and and the benefits that it can also bring to their company because let's just face it companies while they know why they may know that inclusion and diversity is very important for a business. It's usually by the bottom line. So we try to come together with them and brainstorm and find out ways that we can support their employees and therefore also support their company and being a successful company where everybody's welcome. Is EPAN doing any work to kind of expand the pool of folks outside the industry who might be thinking about aviation as a career, but going, oh, I'm not sure if that career track is available to me you know, as someone who's a member of the LGBT community? You know, we are. The biggest word I could, it's a one answer, it's a one word answer to that question. It's representation. So seeing somebody that is similar to you in whichever aspect that is, obviously, when we talk about diversity, it's it's definitely not just about LGBT, and it's not just about gender. The columns of diversity are infinite. So one person fills many different shoeboxes, basically, whether it's a different culture, religion, gender, gender identity, sexual orientation, whatever. Something that makes you different than the person that's sitting next to you is what diversity is. And when we talk about representation, it's basically... When I see somebody that's similar to me doing something I didn't know I could do, it motivates me and changes my mindset and it gets me to think, oh, wow, I could actually do that. And actually, that's one of the things we get quite often at EPAN when we when people follow us on Instagram or find a post on Facebook or meet us at somewhere, who knows, at a party or at a social event or at a conference, they often come up to us and say, wow, this is awesome. I thought I was alone. I thought I was the only one. And that's that's one thing we're really trying to push is the whole, you know, you could even throw a hashtag at the front of it, hashtag, you are not alone. And there are so many people in the aviation industry that are just so different and make it so unique. And, you know, any industry is is actually just a representation of society itself. And our society is super diverse. And so is the aviation industry. I find that fascinating because when we've had other aviators on who talk about either their own careers or encouraging young people to pursue a career in aviation, one of the big things that we've talked about is when they started, they weren't sure that this was a career path for them. They didn't know anybody who had pursued this career path. And they didn't know if they were allowed to or were able to because they didn't have anyone in their immediate circle. So I think this is one of those important things that we've kind of talked about. And you mentioned, you know, diversity is just being a little, you know, different and you can have different measures of diversity. And I think one of the things that we've talked about in the past is certainly women in aviation and opening aviation up more so on that front. But I think this is also a very interesting thing. And the fact that you kind of saw an existing group and built on that. And now all of a sudden, there's a transatlantic network available to folks that are looking to enter into aviation and belong in the aviation community. I think that's a fascinating way to go about building a community where you have some unique challenges, especially around traveling long distances to different states that may have different 
laws that impact you differently. Absolutely. And that's especially for the people in the aviation industry that work in the airplane and have to travel for work. It's the sense of community. It's priceless because whether you're flying within the U.S. from... Who knows, from New York City to Miami or something, and you are new in the company and you don't know many colleagues, maybe you don't want to hang out with your colleagues, you you have this community wherever you go, whether it's flying across the Atlantic or over here in Europe also. I like to compare actually the European continent with the US in the sense that there's in the US, there's obviously 50 states. And over here, there's so many countries within the European Union and within the, the continent as well. And each country here also has its own regulations, its own laws, and the status of LGBTQ people throughout Europe. Europe is different wherever you go. And it's important to provide that support network, not only for those that are traveling, but also for those that maybe live, let's just say, for example, in Eastern European countries where being homosexual or just not heterosexual is, it could be a crime. You could be thrown in jail. If you travel to the Middle East, you could be stoned or put to jail for life or something like that. So it's, that's another interesting aspect is if you can't travel and if you want to become a part of the aviation industry and you are of a diverse background and you find an organization like ours, then once again, that person finds out, oh, I'm not alone. I can do this. It may still be difficult for me where I live and maybe my family won't accept it, but I at least know I'm not alone and I can follow along on the social medias or via newsletter. Or if I do ever get to Europe, for example, then we, I could join one of these events. And it's the sense of community. We're speaking with Zach Brown, who's the founder of the European Pride and Aviation Network, but he's also a pilot for a large European freight carrier. And so this being Avtalk, I would certainly be remiss if I didn't ask you about flying what is now essentially a classic airplane. Tell us what aircraft you fly. So I fly the Airbus 300. And I just have to ask about that. What is it like flying the most Boeing of Airbus aircraft? <laughs> yeah, it's truly what they say. Uh, it's the best Airbus Boeing ever built. <laughs> so to be honest, I have I can't compare it to anything except the planes that I flew in flight school because, well, if you're from outside of Europe, you better hold on tight because maybe you didn't know in Europe I could fly a heavy category wide body aircraft just out of flight school. I don't have to wait the 1500 hours like you have to do in the US, for example. Yeah, so I basically came right from flight school. And actually, I did my flight school in the US. Most of my training. Then I came back to Europe and did the EASA conversion. And basically right after that, I got the job at this airline flying the Airbus 300. And it was definitely a once in a lifetime opportunity because in Europe, they're not flying anymore except at this airline and some other airlines that kind of work for this network that I fly for. So for those that don't know about the A300 in particular, what makes the A300 unique is, is most people know that Boeing has kept the control column and yoke and Airbus has gone to the side stick or, or went to the side stick very soon after they started producing aircraft. But the A300 has a control column and yoke. So it's, it's an Airbus aircraft with Airbus design, but it feels on the flight deck, feels more similar than any other Airbus aircraft, obviously, to a Boeing aircraft. And it's just fascinating to see the it's still available to some airlines. I mean, most of the A300s have gone away. There's a few A300s out there flying, but also the A310s are still out there a little bit more in force, but they seem to be going away way quickly. Are you on the A300? Is that your preferred aircraft or are you looking to move on kind of as they run out of, out of time in the fleet? 
Well, I mean, let's just put it this way. If they expire at some point, I'm going to have to switch. And at the moment, so my company has two other fleets. We have the Airbus 330 and we have the Boeing 757. And I'm not too keen at the moment to switch. So I'm just about to make five years in the company. And also in the parcel package delivery aviation industry, it's not the same as flying passengers. So we don't fly that many hours. I hit maybe about 350 hours a year or so. So I'm not tired of my airplane and it's always exciting. And like you said, it's cool to have an Airbus that has a control column in the middle. And if you have to go downstairs to the avionics compartment, you know, you can still see all the, the cables and the rods and the pulleys. And actually, I just remembered that I believe if you listen to this podcast right when it comes out on July 8th, I believe it's the 40th anniversary of the first, not the first A300, but at least the first A300-600 flight. And that was July 8th, 1983. I'm not that big of an av geek, but I do. I did see it on my calendar this morning because I do fly that plane. So I put it in my calendar. <laughs> <laughs> but that's it was cool. So the A300-600 basically got rid of the three-man cockpit or the three-person cockpit. And so there's no more flight engineer. So it's just the two of us flying throughout the night across Europe, across Africa, delivering all those boxes. No, it's it's a pretty cool job. And it's a pretty cool company too. That's fantastic. This has been our conversation with Zach Brown, who is flying for a package delivery service, but more importantly for today, is the founder of the European Pride in Aviation Network, trying to open up aviation careers and careers in aviation to a wider variety of folks. And we appreciate your efforts. Zach, thanks so much for taking the time to speak with us today. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Welcome back. Thank you. The thing about all of these conversations that we've been having, and and Zach and I touched on it a bit, both in our recorded conversation, but also before when we were discussing what we were going to talk about, is the idea that a lot of times this all gets turned into, you know, hiring people for who they are instead of you know, kind of their qualifications or things like that. And I hope in the conversation, we we address a little bit of that and that it's not, you know, hiring for the sake of, you know, it's missing out the qualified people who otherwise wouldn't apply. Yep. And I think that's the most important thing to take away from it is that, you know, making sure that you are not afraid to be who you are in a professional setting so that you can pursue your passions. So that you can say, I am passionate about aviation and now I feel like there's a place for me here rather than no, that aviation doesn't seem like a place where I want to be because of who I am. So I think that to me is the most important takeaway and I wish them the best of luck in progressing with that that message in in all their endeavors. Yep. Good stuff. Where are we? We're going to Australia. I want to go to Australia. Well, okay. nice. We're not. Oh. But Virgin Australia is taking delivery of its first well, maybe maybe we are, but not on this particular flight. Virgin Australia takes delivery of its first 737-8. It is their first of 8-8 Maxes, and they also have 25 of the Max 10s on order. And this will be the first route for this particular aircraft or this aircraft type will be the Cannes Tokyo, which is currently served by a 737-700. No, thank you. No, no. I mean, no, no to any of that. But yeah, Virgin Australia has been through a lot of crap recently since COVID. Probably one of the most impacted airlines in the world, or at least airline that is still existing. Obviously, the most impacted would be the airlines that no longer exist. But yeah, Virgin Australia went through massive 
massive changes. They weren't flying long haul at all for a good while. So very nice to see them take on an entirely new fleet type. Well, kind of. Still just kinda. a max, but yeah. But it's something to celebrate. Yeah. On the other side of things where I get to say, no, Jason, I told you so. The A321XR was indeed part of the flying display. and well, Somebody should tell the French. <laughs> and now we have the footage to prove it. We had the good fortune to have an exclusive on the flight deck with the flying display. So if you haven't checked out our YouTube channel, you should do that because you get to watch the flying display from the flight deck. And we also had a nice write-up with the pilots and flight test engineer talking about how that all comes together, which is something that I'm just fascinated by, how it all goes from paper on a table to here's a multi-million dollar machine doing these things in front of all of these people. So a really cool write-up and a fantastic video. I encourage you all to watch that. But Jason, you noted something that I thought was funny as well on the final day of the Paris Air Show. Yeah. On the final day, they just went home at the end of the flying display, which is, I don't know if it's been done before. It probably has. If you can name something, it's probably been done before. But on the final day of the 321 XLR performing at the Paris Air Show, it did its stunts. It did all of the loop-de-loops and all of the nice high bank angles and aggressive climbs, and then just went back to Toulouse. Didn't land again at Le Bourget and just continued on back to the south of France. And I, I thought that was fun. We're done. We're done. We're going home. We're done Thanks. here. We're Thanks, leaving. Paris. It's been Goodbye. fun. Thank you. <laughs> and then we'll leave the show from Toulouse. Air Tahiti has just taken delivery of its 35th ATR 72, or ATR, this being an ATR 72600. And the reason we bring it up is because it has a lovely new livery. Registration F-O-R-V-X. So a very, very cool new livery. So check that out. Always happy to talk about new, fancy, special liveries. We will never leave those out. Such an easy topic. (laughs) And a pretty one to look at. Very, very cool. I don't even know what the proper name for it is, but we'll put a link in the show notes and you can check it out. Well, this has been episode 222 of AvTalk, and the weather did not cooperate in any way, shape, or form, and hopefully next week is a better week. We're going into the July 4th holiday weekend, one of the busiest for travel. Airlines are gearing up, and so are we. Hopefully next week, we get to sit down and say, hey, that went well. But if it goes well, if it doesn't go well, we'll be here to talk about it. I am Ian Pechnik here as always with Jason Rabinowitz. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.